Hello, everyone, and welcome to something new, something interesting, something strange. Uh, let's see how this experiment goes. Uh, this is the Eggshells Podcast Companion. Uh, what you're listening to here is a special podcast companion uh, to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, which is, if you're listening to this in the summer of 2018 or later, uh, this is the official audio companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, the book which is now available uh, on the internet, uh, wherever you get your books. Um, as long as you get your books on the internet, I assume, uh, in paperback, in digital form, in audio form as well. Uh, but this podcast is designed to go beyond the text and kind of give an extra little insight as episode by episode, I'll be joined by a different guest um, to go through each of the years uh, in the Tokyo Dome history. And this time, uh, joining me in this first episode, uh, joining me, Chris Charlton, is Jojo Remy. You may remember him from Voices of Wrestling uh, contributions. You may remember him from Japanese audio wrestling back when that was a thing on the lore. Uh, but now he's, he's joining me to have a look at the Tokyo Dome in 1989, Jojo. Yeah, you know, Chris, in 1989, I was four years old. So I saw you, uh, you tweeted out, like, anybody have any fond memories of 1989? <laughs> You know, honestly, my memories of 1989 are basically like, you know, maybe Ghostbusters, maybe Ninja Turtles, and, you know, not much else. I so, was, uh, I'm with you there. I was six. I turned six in 1989, in late 1989. We'll get, we'll get to that point, that point later. Um, were you, uh, what was your, obviously, I don't think you were trading tapes, um, at age not four. Not quite. Not no. quite. No. Wait. Mm. Four, I wasn't even watching wrestling yet. You know, four years old, like I said, uh, it was all Ghostbusters, Ninja Turtles, and I was really, you know, that was like the beginning of getting into music. So, like, my parents have, like, home videos of me, like, dancing around, singing Beatles songs, because my dad was a big Beatles fan. So, yeah, just a, a happy kid playing with Ghostbusters toys and singing I'm a Loser, which is a Beatles song. <laughs> I, uh, I have a four-year-old and he likes wrestling but that's because i, I make him watch um so the, you know that's that's a little bit different there i i think i was dimly aware of wrestling at sort of age age six ish but uh certainly not japanese wrestling or even japan as a place like do, do you think was there at like a point where you were cognizant of uh, japan as, as a different culture I mean, I had a globe growing up, and I definitely, like, you know, checked out what was on the other side of it. Uh, culturally, that would have come much later, you know, when I was when I was already into wrestling. You know, a lot of my interest in Japanese culture was basically a product of my interest in Japanese wrestling, which I've mentioned before didn't happen until I was in high school. Um, so, you know, no, no cultural awareness outside of, you know... Miami-Dade County at this point in my life, but um, definitely, uh, you know, the makings of of a wrestling fan were there. I think I think I was about nine years old when I first got into wrestling. Mm. So what we'll be doing on this podcast is the the role of the book. If if you've read it, and uh, this is going out as an early access to people who back the book on on Indiegogo. So for the people listening to it uh, earlier than the summer of 2018, you haven't read it. 
Um, but the, the book goes through show by show of, of every show that's, that's happened in the Tokyo Dome. And so what we're going to do on this podcast is kind of do that, but in a different way so that we're not <laughs> regurgitating the book or spoiling it. Um, instead, I thought it would be fun to have a look at, uh, these shows in, uh, the, the context of real life and real sort of Japanese life at the time. Um, and then to look at really just a, a key match each or a key figure each, uh, from, from each of these shows. Um, so to start us off here, that the first show, uh, that happened in the Tokyo Dome, the first pro wrestling show, uh, that happened in the Tokyo Dome was in, uh, late April, uh, 1989. Uh, the Tokyo Dome had opened in March of 1988, um, and there was, uh, this was a funny thing, um, I put it, you know, as we're recording this during the Indiegogo stuff, I put it in the weekend update, uh, it opens the Tokyo Dome before baseball, se- before baseball season started. So the Omiyuri Giants uh, played against the Hanshin Tigers in, in an exhibition match, um, and already, just even in that baseball game, they inflated the attendance by 10,000. <laughs> you know they're they're just getting warmed up for what was to come right right but the the tokyo dome seats uh 46,000 for for baseball and they announced 56,000 um so it's it's not something that's limited to pro wrestling inflated attendance you know happens in sports happens in everything um but the first show that happens in the tokyo dome happened on april 24th 1989 uh, New Japan Kakuto Eisei, but that's a battle satellite, uh, in the Tokyo Dome. And in April 1989, it was really kind of, uh, a, kind of a busy period. Like lots of things were happening in spring 1989. And, and really, uh, this was peak bubble era Japan, like literally the peak of the, of the bubble era. This was the, the, height of uh stock prices stock prices reached their, their highest uh at this time um so yeah and we we also had uh some news some news headlines from april 1989 uh the prime minister uh noboru takeshita resigned over the stock trading scandal so like this is extremely peak 80s um and the the top single for 1989 was uh akina nakamori and liar Do you know that song, Chris? Uh, no, I don't. I had to look it up on YouTube before I listened to it. And uh, you know, I think what we should do is use yeah. that song as like either the intro or the exit to this show, so people can hear it. I'll be splicing in clips as we go. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. How's your Japanese pop knowledge, JJ? Ah, terrible. Even even living here, terrible. It's yeah. uh, it's not good. Right. Right. Um, let's see other pop culture things that were happening on the, t- at the time, uh, really just a few days before, uh, Battle Sight Light in Tokyo Dome, a little show called Dragon Ball debuted on, on Fuji TV. I have uh, heard of that. Yep. Yep. I'm not, we talked about this before, neither of us are anime guys, but, uh, certainly Dragon Ball is a pretty well-known name. Yeah. I could identify if you, if there was a lineup, I could probably identify Dragon Ball out of, you know. Four or five choices, I think. Dragon, Dragon Ball. The, that, of course, the the central character of the anime Dragon Ball is a guy called Dragon Ball. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, and also out in April of 1989 was the Game Boy. <laughs> That I that I can definitely identify in the lineup of four objects. <laughs> like a Game Boy, a toaster. Yeah. yeah, Game Boy, toaster, guitar, shoehorn. I can definitely pick out the Game Boy. <laughs> um, so do you, you? You must have had a Game Boy, right? I didn't have a Game Boy till much later. Like I think the first Game Boy I had was probably a Game Boy Color. Uh, so I definitely didn't have one in 89. In fact, I think in 89 is when I got my first like NES, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know what year that came out, but you know, I'm definitely a fan of the Game Boy. How about you? When, when did yeah, you get your I, first Game I Boy? I also got a Game Boy kind of, yeah, I got a Game Boy late, um, but it was the thing in the playground when I was like about seven, seven, eight, like, you know, sort of 1991, like everybody would, would have Game Boys and then some kids would have like the, the Game Gear or the Atari Lynx, which was the size of a fucking briefcase, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, Game Boy, the, the one thing about the Game Boy where like, because you put the cartridges in the back, right? And a little bit of the label stuck out. So that was always a thing of, oh, what are you playing? And like, you look at the back and you look at the title or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, craning over like the bigger kids shoulders to, to see what, what people are playing, um, was a thing for me. Um, but, uh, yes, the, the economic news of the time also like, uh, in spring of 1989, um, the, the, value-added tax or the the sales tax was introduced to japan for the first time three percent jojo yeah and now we're at what eight percent eight percent is going to go up to ten yeah so that's i mean that's actually crazy to me that that tax you know consumption tax didn't exist prior to 1989 in japan yeah yeah it's kind of mental because it's it's really high it's always been really high in the uk and that's always been an excuse for being screwed on high prices of things but uh yeah, three percent when I came to Japan it was five percent. And then uh, it went up like maybe five years ago, six years ago, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's also crazy because like last year to stay on video games I I played a fair bit of Yakuza Zero. And pretty much everything that we're covering on this podcast from a new sense is played out in that game because it's it's very much like a um you know this is bubble era japan or you mm. know, and uh yeah it, it's uncanny but there is like one sequence where you have to talk to a government economist about and try and convince him not to implement the sales tax <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's awesome so yeah um and that takes us all to yes april 24th 1989 and uh the first new japan show in the tokyo dome um really the first sort of stadium show stadium pro wrestling show uh for quite some time you know it, it was always kind of deemed to be oh this is a very sort of profitable arena um attraction but not really a stadium attraction i mean like you had the the big rikidoza match in uh Korakuen stadium 
which was which the Tokyo Dome replaced. It was like right next door. But you had that huge match in the sixties. And other than that, like a couple of matches in in Osaka stadiums, but like really this was the first um big sort of this this was the chance to make stadium shows a, a regular thing in Japan. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just looking at you know, we're talking about attendance numbers a second ago, but you know, looking at the attendance here, I don't know if you have any insight into, you know, how many people were actually there, but it looked like people were definitely ready to have a, a show of this scale, um, you know, to kick off the new the new venue. Yeah, it was, I mean, when we get into one of the figures I want to mention, it, it wasn't entirely like a, a, a done deal. You know, I think there was a lot of concerns over whether they could fill it. And uh, Inoki had his concerns over whether they could fill it. Like the initial, sur- there was a strong initial surge of tickets. And then it kind of fell away as as the show got closer. Um, and then, and then picked up, picked up again towards the, towards the end. Um, 53,600 was the announced crowd. Um, but as with a lot of these shows, it's very hard to tell exactly, uh, how many people were, were in there. So as I said, uh, before we got into this, um, what I'd like to do on this, uh, this here podcast program is, uh, for myself and my guest on each episode, uh, to choose, uh, a match or an individual each to, to really talk about. And, uh, since you, Jojo, are, are the guest, um, I will graciously allow you to go first. So what really sort of leapt, leapt out at you, uh, on this card and why? You know, I went back and watched some of the the other matches, but the only match I could remember, um, you know, when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about this show, was uh, Liger's debut match against Kuniaki Kobayashi. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that match included. I watched some of them back, and I think for for the debut of a superhero superhero influenced babyface, uh, you know, upstart wrestler. Liger had to be the grumpiest possible version of himself. Um, and I just really enjoyed, like, there's, a, there's you know, just some... He, that was my cat. I don't know if you could hear that. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's just, like, so fired up. He's so reckless. He's so, like, all over the place. You know, you think of Liger as a very, like, measured, scientific to some extent... Mm. Um, you know, but he was just very raw at this point. Um, my favorite part of the whole match is actually after the match. So he's supposed to be this superhero or whatever. And, you know, Kobayashi is like this veteran kind of heelish, you know, uh, you know, not legend at this point, but a very key figure in the junior heavyweight division in Japan. And Liger, yeah. you know, Liger was an upstart, you know, very hyped young line, very good wrestler already. Anyway, so Liger pulls up his mask at the end and spits at Kobayashi, which is like completely counterintuitive to how you think this would play out. But anyway, uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but Liger is definitely what stand, stands out to me when I think about this show. I definitely I like I get what you mean about it being kind of a, a rough and ready match. And it's always something like I'm not a fan of this match at all, actually, um, because like it's it's very sort of counter to what you think of with with Liger it's a very uh it's it feels very disjointed to me but there is like I I like Liger's sort of recklessness and the move before going to the finish with like this this German suplex like Liger does this weird sort of almost like a corkscrew 
standing like rocket kakeshi kind of thing <laughs> um which is like you know it's almost like i i don't know if you remember this spot jojo but it's almost i'm not sure what he was going for but i've never seen it before or since and it's kind of awesome you know um like yeah kobayashi is standing and uh yeah sort of like launches himself backwards twists in midair and sort of lands a kakeshi headbutt style thing very strange uh very strange move um but yeah kobayashi kenyaki kobayashi was of course like the the a big rival for tiger mask and so that was kind of the the idea of this match was kind of continuing this thing of put kobayashi up as up against like the the child's anime hero you know and so kobayashi was constantly going over going after uh liger's mask um, but what's strange about this is that you kind of, the presentation of, of Liger, um, in his debut match is so counter to what we'd expect. And so counter to what you'd expect from, like, if it was the same thing in, in the West, or even if they did the same character now. Um, like, even if you go back to Tiger Mask W, you know, Koto Bushi is Tiger Mask W. Where they're like, it's, it's obvious that it's, it's Kota and like, but you know, there's, there's some, some nods to that in the sides to that by the announcers, but by and large, oh, it's Tiger Mask W. And here, like the, the weird, you know, you go about halfway through the match, like Liger does his, that, that rolling heel kick thing. And the announcers go, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's Keiji Yamada. Like, you know, he kicks just like, oh, I knew it. That's Keiji Yamada, you know? Yeah, that caught me by surprise when I heard them Mm. say that. I thought there was going to be some sort of, you know, playing up the fact that they didn't know who it was, but that didn't last very long at all. Yeah, well, I mean, he, they even, he was interviewed, Yamada was interviewed in, uh, Gong magazine, uh, with Gonagai. You know, this was, uh, for, for, People who don't know, Jushin Liger was uh, an anime uh, that was being a- aired on Asahi at the time. So it's like we have the license to this character. Um, you know, and obviously in the end, Liger the wrestler became far more popular than Liger the anime character. Um, but they they made a big deal of it of, yes, Keiichi Yamada is going to be Jushin Liger. You know, and he was interviewed in, in Gong Magazine talking to Gonagai about, about this, <laughs> about this, this project. But it could have been all different. Because the original person, um, you know, destined for, to be Jushin Liger, or what Inoki wanted to be Jushin Liger, was Masakatsu Funaki. Um, could you imagine Funaki in in this kind of match? Where, how would you think he would have portrayed Liger any differently than uh, Yamada did? Yeah, I mean, to this version of Liger, it was a little bit more shooty and grumpy than what would Liger would eventually become. So this proto-Liger, I could see Funaki fitting in. But what I can't see is, you know, Funaki still doing that gimmick today. Right. Or, or you know, in, you know, peak, uh, you know, 1994, 1992, like that version of Liger. I can't see Funaki doing that either. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, Liger worked this match very aggressively and very almost – somewhat shoot influenced so i could see funaki filling that but it, it clearly evolved from there mm-hmm. well um my match that i wanted to talk about uh from battle satellite was the opener and, and that's probably that's kind of why I, I chose it because it was the first match to ever happen in in the tokyo dome but uh actually i think 
if you look at all of these battle satellite matches from today's wrestling fan standpoint, from today's view of wrestling, it, it kind of holds up more as a, a modern style wrestling match than anything else. Um, and that's, uh, Naoki Sano against, uh, Hiro Saito. Um, yeah. What, what did you think of this match watching it back? Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's definitely, uh, an energetic match. It, it definitely holds up, you know, sorry. It definitely holds up relative to some of the, you know, more dated matches that you have in the heavyweight tournament after that followed it. Um, you know, the thing that stood out to me here was not necessarily the match itself, but the fact that Hiro Saito, who at this point was a nine-year veteran, and Naoki Sano, who I think at this point was a, a five-year veteran, calling themselves Young Lions. Ah, yeah. Well, see, so this was the finals of the Young Tokyo Dome tournament. The Young Tokyo Dome Cup. I think is is what they actually called it. Um and yeah, I'm I'm sure as we go through we'll we'll find a lot of different places where cage match and a lot of the Western internet translates things wrong. But they uh you know, if you look it up on online on most of the English internet, then it's a Young Lions Cup that they put it towards. But it was the Young Tokyo Dome. And it was kind of I think the idea was uh it was a single elimination tournament and everybody was under thirty. It was more of a kind of a U thirty thing than a you have okay. to be. Yeah, that makes sense. yeah. So I mean, Saito, had, yeah, Hiro Saito, as you say, had been around for years and years and years, um, and kind of just sort of toiled in the middle of the range, and then in '88, I think, in the in the top of the Super Juniors tournament, as it was then, uh, he had a, a pretty good um, outing. Um, and yeah, as you said, now now Kisano were a little bit younger at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, in this, we don't know too much, um, about the, the rest of the tournament. It's very hard to find a lot of the details, but to reach the finals, Hiro Saito, uh, went over Akira Nogami, um, and Sano went over one Takashi Izuka. So the ties to the, the present day from, uh, or from before this Tokyo Dome show, uh, to today, they, they count, um, you know, you can count Liger still around today and Takashi Izuka. Well, Takashi Izuka at this time, he was Takayuki Izuka, of course. Yeah. And Akira is still working too, just not in New Japan. And I yep. guess technically Hiro Saito is still working too, but you know, Akira is more active than he is. Right. Yeah. Hiro Saito is, as we're recording this as, uh, yeah, still certainly still around there. <laughs> you know, still doing all those processing masters kind of things. Um, but yet yeah, the, the one thing that, uh, definitely sticks in my mind from this is, uh, you know, at, at an early point, Saito, uh, powers out of Naokisano, who has him in the Boston Crab, gets this big missile dropkick. Um, you know, and Saito at this point, Still, I mean, chunky for a junior heavyweight, you know, and, and I think these days, you know, he would be called a heavyweight and he would go up to heavyweight, but does this uh, pretty impressive missile dropkick to, to, uh, to Sano and then Sano rolls out to the floor. Saito follows with a suicide dive that lives up to his name and just eats shit on concrete. <laughs> You know, like he clears, he dives through the ropes, clears the mats that are on the outside and just smacks into the concrete floor. It is not pretty. Yeah, this was not the Hiro Saito I remember from, you know, NWO Japan and Team 2000 era. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think like this this match led into the Hirosaito you remember. <laughs> yeah, but he kept doing the the, the on You know, he never yeah. stopped doing that. But yeah, you wouldn't see him do a suicide dive. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just a, a really fun sort of brief, uh, brief match that uh, in the end, um, yeah, Sino uh, sort of takes a takes a power bond in the end and then reverses the pin for for a three count. And now Kisano, um, you know, Hirosaito would stay in New Japan, obviously all the way up to the Team Two Thousand era, but uh, now Kisano would eventually leave, and uh, his name will come up come up in Tokyo Dome cards in in the future. But he feud with Liger for a good bit, and then uh, he'd go off through SWS and then into UWF, and then he'd face Liger again in the Tokyo Dome. In actual fact, in 1995, a, a good deal later when they were doing the UWF UWF crossover show. That's right, and he was probably on one of the Noah shows too. I would assume he may have been. I'm gonna to have to look up, <laughs> look that up in my own book um, to find out on that one. But uh, yeah, as I said, like uh, you know, the the theme of this show kind of beyond the IWGP tournament, um, which you know the, the deal was uh, Fujinami vacated the belt so that they could have it as in a tournament in the in the Tokyo Dome, um, and the sort of secondary theme to this was the Russians coming in um and that was that was the thing that was when uh kind of i would say around february was when the the tickets were sort of flagging and and inoki was looking for he was looking for two things a was looking for extra mainstream promotion and b he was looking for people that he could get on the card for quite cheap um, and that led him talking to the Russian government <laughs> for things. Um, and so you had this, this deal where, you know, I mean, Inoki wanted to get into politics. So he was seen as, as reaching behind the, the iron curtain. Um, and you, you have to realize like the, the Berlin Wall was about to fall down at this point. Um, and so, you know, he got a deal of, of a bunch of Russian, Russian sort of judoka and, and amateur wrestlers, um, to come over, uh, to, to wrestle in New Japan shows. And you had, yeah, they, they were called the Red Blue Army, uh, led by Salman Hashmikov. Like they came in, in, in February and then like their, their big deal was the, was the Tokyo Dome show. I mean, uh, what were your, thoughts of, of what you saw of the the russian influence on the show yeah i mean i so i watched the hashimoto zangiev match mm. and that was awesome like really stiff and like really uh realistic and a really good showcase for hashimoto at this point in his career probably his biggest uh chance in terms of exposure for sure um and I, he stepped up to the plate big time and I really enjoyed that match. I, I wasn't expecting to enjoy it just because it, it didn't seem like... It kind of reminded me of like an early UFC fight almost. Just like a very, very stark contrast in terms of styles. But I think they worked, they worked really well together. I really enjoyed it. Zengiev is very strange. You know, I mean, Zengiev is kind of 
like Zangief in Street Fighter 2 is kind of an amalgam of a lot of people, but like Vitor Zangief is sort of hailed as, as the guy that inspired the character. It certainly like inspired the body hair, you know? For sure. I mean, yeah. Not, not the rest of him, but like he's a very strange looking man, you know? He kind of seems like, you know, if Mr. Bean was a Russian wrestler, he would be like, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but he was super over. And like if you saw his first, tournament match was against buzz sawyer and like the the crowd were mental for zangief like going over buzz sawyer you know buzz sawyer was uh uh you know a big heel at the time but uh yeah the the crowd was was hugely hot for zangief and they, they did this thing where uh sawyer gave zangief a, a german suplex and like zangief kicked out at two but like you know buzz sawyer thought he'd won had, had the arms up and and uh yeah then got uh, then got German suplexed himself for the, for the three count. And yeah, the crowd were mental for him, for Zangief. And then, yeah, obviously it's put, put opposite Hashimoto, who had like this, this path and eventually made it through to the finals, you know, and, and was this sort of, as you said, like underdog, this, at this point, he'd been in and out the country, he'd done a lot of work in Calgary, actually. And then, um, yeah, this was kind of his, his coming out party in Japan. And it was like, you know, there was a contingent of the fans thinking, oh, he could actually go all the way. You know, Fujinami was eliminated in the tournament early. So there, there was definitely, uh, this thing of, oh, we're going to get a new champion. It could, it could be, um, you know, it could be Hashimoto. And then, then it turned out to be Vader, of course. I guess at that point in the tournament, you know, when this match took place, he was the only only Japanese guy left. He would, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. Um, Vader had already or is about to go into the finals. Um, so yeah. Well, actually, go 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 go. Where are we on the card here? I think so, Vader had just beat Fujinami. Yeah, Vader had just beat Fujinami in the in the semis. So we knew Vader was going to be in the finals, and we knew it was going to be a new champion. And then, uh, yeah, and then Hashimoto Hashimoto went through. Um, and so oddly, that that final title match actually happened for one, two, three, four, five from the top. <laughs> because uh you know after that you had this this tag match out of nowhere which was kind of buffer and then liger was booked above the iwgp title yeah which um, was crazy yeah and then you know salmon hashmikov it was kind of the deal where he was the leader of the the red blue army um so him against bam bam Bigelow was was put higher up and then of course you yeah, know had to be at the top can't not have Inoki at the top um but also because like that match that that final uh match that was uh, dubbed an MMA match um was they they made it really strange they they took the ropes down um and they actually changed the shape of the ring like they they adapted or they cut down the shape of the ring so it was a circular ring for that one so they that kind of had to go last um just for practicality's sake but um yeah overall this this was a sort of positive start and uh you know whether or not it actually did 536 um it did sort of establish that that you could run uh wrestling shows in a building that size for sure and you you know we've both been in the Tokyo Dome and we've heard reactions and some of the reactions on this show sounded you know just as loud if not louder than anything i've heard while i've been in that building so yeah. Um, I would say definitely a success. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go, we head on to the next show. It wasn't a New Japan show. It was a UWF show. 
the second generation UWF um, held U Cosmos on 29th of November 1989, which was my sixth birthday. Happy um, birthday. Yeah, so I did not go to the Tokyo Dome for, for my sixth birthday. Uh, I think to piggyback on your talk about Ghostbusters, I believe I got a copy of Ghostbusters 2 on VHS for my sixth birthday. I don't know whether the timeline matches up on that. Maybe I was seven. I don't know. Did Ghostbusters 2 come out in, in 89? If it did, then that's, that's why I got my sixth birthday. Um, let's see. Ghostbusters 2 came out in 1989. There you go. Got it right. Um, so yeah, I, I was sort of looking for exciting headlines that, that happened in between, uh, the New Japan show and, and this U Cosmo show and, uh, came up with, uh, instead uh, an extremely dark one. Um, the, the big news story in November, 1989, Jojo was uh, the murder of Tsutsumi Sakamoto, who was like this, this lawyer looking into the Aum Supreme cult who would eventually, uh, unleash the Sarin terror attack on the, the Tokyo underground in, in 1995. And so this, this guy was looking into, um, yeah, this cult kind of stealing money from a lot of people and, and whatever and, and brainwashing them. And a bunch of cult members murdered him and his family. And so that's a delightful way to get into November, 1989. Um, but, uh, yeah, what were you, I, you can't remember what you were doing in, in November of 1989. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, November 1989, I still, you know, was still a toddler. So, yeah, yeah I just don't, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't have much to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> but we do know a lot of what happens in uh, UWFU Cosmos. This was a, um, a weird thing to sort of watch back uh you know leading up to to this show because i watched um when i was writing the book i i watched the original um or the original vhs show um which was very nicely uploaded by someone on youtube and then over the course of me writing this book you know um at, at one point i was i was recommending something to someone and i was like oh check out the show and i linked it to them on twitter i'd use the same youtube link and it was like oh it's been taken down um, so that's gone, but what I did watch instead, and I know you did as well, was this tremendous documentary at the time, uh, which I guess would have, because they had like commercial buffers on it, I guess this would have aired on TBS, um, where they had an occasional TV deal. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was the name of this documentary. It was... Uh, you're gonna, it's difficult because you have to search for it in Japanese, but it was, uh, Shinsei UWF, um, which is like the, the new generation U, UWF, um, Shinkaktogi Densetsu Tokyo Dome. And it's like this kind of lead up to, uh, the, the show itself with condensed highlights of, of the matches. It's a really good human interest kind of thing that you don't really see that much um you know you, you don't see that much from that era shot in that style yeah it was it left me wanting to see more of this type of stuff in today's wrestling um you know what one thing that i really enjoyed is that they presented so this card was basically mostly uh you know uwf guys against foreigners for the most part yeah, uh, and they they really presented the UWF guys as like a cohesive team, 
that train together and study tape together and it i don't know it was just very unique you know looking at in the context of today's wrestling yeah i mean as i said it's very much like a throwback um deal really and and a throwback I mean, that kind of was the, the essence of, of what UWF always was, you know, when sort of Sayama, uh, left, um, and sort of amid great, great controversy and, and started the first UWF. It was always, you know, it was all the thing of like, in, in is a, a showman now, you know, he's in show business, you know, weird, weird, like the original, uh, proper pro wrestling or whatever. Um, and so part of this was, yeah, we, we're going to be straight up martial artists in style. And at the same time, have this very sort of old school booking approach, which was Japanese guy versus, um, versus foreigner. Um, so yeah, what, what, uh, sort of took your fancy on this card? You know, the opener of this, uh, show, which was Tatsuo Nakano and Shigeo Miyato, it, so like I hadn't seen much, much, uh, second generation UWF. Um, I'd seen a little bit, but not much. Um, but this match, more than anything else on the show, reminded me of UWFI, which is the incarnation that I have seen much more of. You know, mm. a lot of the striking in this match was awesome. The mat work was cool, but, you know, not super slick, kind of, you know, sloppy, but looked realistic. But the striking uh, and the pace of this match were, were both really uh, re- reminiscent of, of what I liked about UWFI. Yeah, it was kind of like about Nakano sort of absorbing these kicks and and then sort of getting a suplex in at the end. And like one of the sort of side points of um, the documentary was Nakano like dealing with, uh, I think, liver, some liver disease at this point. Um, so like one of the shots you see, you know, during, uh, the documentary was him getting shot up with a bunch of meds, like right before his match and, and whatever. It's like, oh, I just took, yeah, three different kinds of medicine to just keep my liver functioning or whatever. Um, and then he goes out and, and has this match. But, um, yeah, it's difficult for me because I'm, I'm really not, you know, I've been open about this. Like I'm really not a sort of MMA style person. And a lot of the OWF style really doesn't, um, gel well with me, which is why, uh, you know, I thought that the documentary really helped, you know, on, mm, on yeah, second yeah, viewing yeah. because it actually added this, this human angle, uh, to that and to, uh, the person I wanted to talk about, which was, um, Minoru Suzuki. Um, because if, you know, if you think you know, Minoru Suzuki, either now, He's the, the adorable, lovely, uh, human being that I know that he is. Um, or he's the terrifying psychopath that another part of me knows that he is. Uh, but for all the, in, the intimidating man that he is now, it's, it's fascinating to go back and watch Minoru Suzuki evolve. And, you know, I've had the chance to do that over the last year. Um, but you see, the badass Suzuki kind of really exists around 91, 92, kind of around then. Mm-hmm. But like 89, when he's 21 years old. And so the, the story is, is him like getting this match 
because he, he earned his way into the match by beating Yoji Anjo um, to decide who was going to replace Maskatsu Fanaki because uh, Fanaki had broken his wrist. Um, and Fanaki was going to take on Murray Smith, um, who was like this, the kickboxer. And uh, he was, he was around, he was like one of the first UFC champions, right? Yeah, he was on the first show, I think, pretty sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, but at the time, you know, he was, he was still kind of known as a, as a kickboxer, I guess. Um, and so Suzuki like earns his way into this and there's this whole part of the, the documentary as well of like Fanaki saying, I just like, I, I don't know whether I'd win or not, but I, I just kind of want to know what it's like to walk down the aisle in that building, you know, and that's kind of denied him. And Suzuki takes that, that opportunity um has this this huge match um you know the the biggest stage of his career and and then he loses and like there's this great scene of him like in floods of tears on the back and like getting into the back like you know collapsing and just wailing you know at at, at this this you know all of the the emotion of everything uh coming out and it like that's that's a a great moment but if you're used to Suzuki not looking vulnerable at all like it's a real shock to the system to see him here yeah he was presented as like kind of a golden boy here you know very much an underdog very much you know uh you know, riding an an upward trend in his career. Um, but to think of where he is now, he's not very much, very established and, like you said, very feared. But, um, you know, this is a completely different Minoru Suzuki. Mm. And it's interesting as well. I mean, like, the two tie together, the, the last show and this show, because um, part of Inoki getting the, the Russians over to New Japan was he was also going to send a bunch of wrestlers over to russia you know in exchange um and the deal was they they were going to go over there and learn sambo and a whole bunch of stuff and then he was like well you guys are going to learn a whole bunch of sambo and then i'm going to bring you back and start an mma brand um kind of without without it being kind of cool to mma at, at this point um and one of the people the, the sort of people he had in mind were like fanaki but then he went to uwf um Liger, um, and then he went to be Liger and Minoru Suzuki. And so Fanaki had already left. Um, when Inoki called, called Suzuki in, is like, I want you to be, to be the guy. You know, they'd already had this, this match Inoki and Suzuki had. Um, and Suzuki had worked as Inoki's sort of understudy as his, um, personal assistant for, for a good deal. And like Inoki had, uh, Suzuki in mind for big things, including like this sort of shoot styled weird sub brand idea that, that he had. And in the end, like Seiji Sakaguchi and a lot of the ownerships, they had this sort of MMA allergy and it's like, well, no, you're, you're not allowed to do any of this shit. Um, and they blocked Inoki from starting off this, this brand. And at the same time, Suzuki had a lot of loyalty to, to Fujiwara and, and went and joined UWF. So there's a, there's a good deal of, of sort of symmetry there between these two shows. Definitely. And you can tell that he was, you know, positioned, especially without Funaki on this card, he was, he was positioned kind of as the future of the company, um, in the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Funaki, it was, it was he and Funaki were sort of positioned, I think, as the, the future stars of UWF. And then because they were sort of getting, getting a bigger, bigger slice of, I think, Akira Maeda's pie, pie and, um, 
you know, that's sort of started the, the collapse of the second EOWF. And, uh, you know, we'll revisit, uh, Suzuki and Funaki, uh, again later on. But, uh, yeah, but that was sort of 1989 in the, in the Tokyo Dome. And it's, uh, it's been a, a fun little journey. Yeah, definitely. I was very, uh, impressed by these two shows, just I, how they held up. I, I didn't think they were going to, they were going to hold up as much as they did, but there's still something that you can enjoy even with, you know, in the context of modern wrestling. If you're a, a fan of today's new Japan, for example, uh, there's stuff on these shows that you will enjoy. So go check them out if you get a chance. Yep. Um, so, well, it's, it's difficult to, uh, ask you to pitch, uh, to plug certain things because we, we're not too time sensitive <laughs> on this program. Uh, but if, if people want to, uh, get in touch with Jojo Remy or, or follow what he's doing, uh, where can they do that? They will be able to find at some point, uh, my return to voices of wrestling. Uh, when is this coming out again? Uh, it depends. If you, if people back the Indiegogo, then it's coming out next week. And if they didn't, then it's coming out in the summer. <laughs> okay. So by the summer, yeah, I will have written some best of the super juniors reviews and, and articles and whatnot. So that'll be, you can find me on voices of wrestling talking about best of the super juniors and, you know, Lionsgate, that type of stuff. Usually recently writing, uh, writing new Japan reviews. And you can find me on Twitter at J Audio Wrestling, which I have to change because Chris J Audio Wrestling doesn't exist anymore. That's such a shame. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna have to. I don't know. Something has to be done about that. Something will be done. <laughs> I might just change it to, you know, JoJo wrestles or something. I don't know. JoJo, JoJo wrestles, but he doesn't. <laughs> JoJo talks about wrestling. Yeah. Um, okay. So yes, as I said, this is the official podcast companion to Eggshells Pro Wrestling at the Tokyo Dome. Um, a book that you can read, um, digitally or physically or audibly. Um, and you can get those at the places of the internet where you usually get those, uh, perhaps Amazon.com, for example. Um, on our next episode of the Eggshells Pro Wrestling audio book, Excel's podcast companion. Sorry, this is the first time I've done a podcast in a while. Uh, on the next episode of the Eggshells podcast companion, uh, I will be joined by post wrestling's John Pollock and we're going to be talking about 1990, um, which includes, uh, New Japan Super Fight in Tokyo Dome. And it also includes a, you know, a sort of very much once in a lifetime show, Jojo, the All Japan New Japan WWF Wrestling Summit. Mm, a very, very, very interesting show. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, listen out for that. Uh, in the meantime, as I said, uh, go out and get the book. If you haven't, uh, go to eggshellsbook.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at ReasonJP. Uh, follow Jojo on Twitter at JAudioWrestling unless he has changed it. Um, so now you can't change it <laughs> until the summer, I assume. Or just search for Jojo Remy, perhaps. And uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.